Hello and welcome everyone to Inspire You. As you probably know by now, Inspire You is our Radio 1 Indianapolis's virtual expo. Two days. Uh, we are in day one. I'm Tina Cosby, host of Community Connection, and we have quite an esteemed panel to share with you today for our part of Inspire You, which is moment or movement. Um, we have so many people, and you're going to hear who they are in just a few minutes. We're going to be asking a lot of questions and more. Joining me today will be my colleague, Cameron Riddle, who is a reporter at WRTV6, who is also host of Open Lines Your Eye on the Community right here on Radio 1 Indianapolis, in the Radio 1 Indianapolis studios every Sunday on WTLC-FM and WHHH Hot 96 Three. Cameron, how are you today? Tina, I'm good. We've got a lot of uh, good, distinguished folks, folks who are in the know, who are doing the work uh, to talk about what 2020 has been and what 2021 may be. Was this a movement or was this just a moment in time mm -hmm. to talk about what 2020 was? Our uh, Oshia Boyd, the editor of the Indianapolis Recorder newspaper and the Indiana, the Indiana Minority Business Magazine. Jessica Louise, the spokesperson and representative of Indy 10 Black Lives Matter. And Marshawn Woolley from the African American Coalition of Indianapolis. He is also a civic entrepreneur, business owner, and columnist. And Tina, maybe later in the hour, we may have some other guests that may join us. We may indeed. Um, so Cameron, uh, we, we, we bandied this about and we were trying to figure out um, what, you know, what is it that we want to talk about that not only inspires people, but keeps them motivated, but also uh, enlightens them as to what's been going on these past several months, especially since George Floyd. Well, Tina, it starts with figuring out was 2020 just a moment in time or was this a true movement? Was this uh, a reborn civil rights movement of mm -hmm. 2020? Um, and you would have to start with the people who were there on literally on the front lines to figure out was this just a, a thing that we're going to talk about, uh, which was a number of things that 2020 brought to us or was this the start of something new and i'll suggest that we start with indy 10's uh jessica louise who was who has been out there even more than me there are a few people who have been at more protests and and live action things this year than me and jessica would be one of those people hi jessica hi cameron hi everyone thanks for having us would you say that this 2020, what we've been through, the protests, everything from Dreyjean Reed to George Floyd, was this a moment or was this a movement? I think that the moments that arose this year gave birth to people understanding how to be mobilized and how to get activated within the movement. Um, if you've studied movements, you know that these aren't new. Um, when Trayvon Martin was killed in Florida, when Mike Brown was killed in St. Louis, we saw similar activations by the people. And so it might feel like a moment because we might not have seen anything like this within Indianapolis, but this is all part of a larger movement and all part of a larger collective and a larger network who is actively working and laboring for all Black lives and the liberation of our people. So, oh, Gia, what about uh, oh, okay. Uh, the question I was going to, Indy 10, um, Black Lives Matter, well, Black Lives Matter in general seems to be um, the defining, the defining um, 
organization, the defining um, energy behind everything since George Floyd. Would you agree? I think that we, because we are trained um, organizers and because we have a strong collective within our network and a strong presence within our communities, that people look to us to be a voice of authority in the community when police brutality and police killings arise. So it would be, um, I think it would be fair to say that we could be seen as um, the rallying voice of the movement at this time. Yeah. yeah, because so many, so many groups that, that, that before either misunderstood you, either mis, they, 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 uh, Black Lives Matter was re- misrepresented to them until they saw that knee on the neck. And now so many uh, organizations, people, athletes, you name it, are embracing uh, Black Lives Matter, wearing Black Lives Matter T-shirts, you know, hanging uh, Black Lives Matter banners, uh, you know, all, all around them. So there, there is something to that. There's a lot to that. There absolutely is. And this is this level of support is um, unprecedented, especially in Indianapolis. I think that we've seen local support. Uh, We've seen some community support when we have direction, we do political education or we do political direct action. Of course, that community support is there. But I think that the global pandemic, as well as um, the happenings nationwide and even globally in regards to the loss of black lives at the hands of police, really mobilize and activate people who didn't otherwise think that they had the capacity to lend themselves to the rallying cry of Black Lives Matter. So we're thankful. We're excited. Uh, We have some really big plans in 2021 for those who are wanting to know how to continue to be activated and continue in this labor for liberation. And we're ready. We've been waiting and training and organizing for this moment within the movement for years. And it's here. So, so uh, O'Shea and Marshawn, from where you sit, how do you see it? Oh, I I agree with I agree with what Jessica said. Um, the Black Lives Matter organization, particularly in Indianapolis, has really emerged as um, a true energizing force. Mm-hmm. We protest in Indianapolis now. That did not used to be a thing. Um, in fact, for a while, we we for whatever reason celebrated that we did not do that. Um, I think we're in a new paradigm now, in part because of the work of Black Lives Matter. With respect to the original question, um, I think we have always been in a sustained movement. The movement has sometimes had more energy at times Mm -hmm. than others. Um, The other piece of it is we live this. Um, I mean, when you think about folks organizing to train, to to, uh, get to a moment where they can capitalize on... on, um, maybe what the community is, that's a big thing. Our work at the African-American Coalition is um, really behind the scenes, engaging with institutions and organizations on a regular basis. And so I know I live that work, uh, but certainly um, the work of the Indy 10 Black Lives Matter has really energized everything. O'Shea? Yeah, I was going to say, I definitely agree with Jessica and Marshawn. I think uh, Indy 10 Black Lives Matter, they have emerged as leaders in the community and so people look to them to see what should we do next what's going to happen where should we go um but i think this has always been like marshawn said a movement there has been energy kind of kind of uh kind of wanes and then you have a resurgence i think um we are seeing now that people are actually wanting to look for a sustained movement that it's no longer kind of the energy is dying we are i think tired 
tired of things not changing and realizing that we have to actually continue pushing people to make change versus kind of waiting around and saying, okay, well, we did our part. We voted so-and-so in. So now let's wait and see. I think we're tired of the wait and see game. We're like, we're going to keep forcing and forcing this until we actually make something happen. It's well overdue. I mean, it's 2020, almost 2021. And we're still talking about the same things we were talking about (laughs) since we came on this continent, basically. Yeah. Mark, you mentioned a moment ago that Indianapolis doesn't protest. And when we started, when that first protest broke out here in Indianapolis on May 29th, on that Thursday, um, I remember saying, I ain't nothing going to happen downtown tonight. You know, it'll be, they will, everything will be cool. Didn't think it would turn into what it turned into. But even on the night uh, the Drayshawn Reed was killed, I knew that there was something different in the air that night because people had assembled. Of course, we were able to see what happened in real time and we everyone knew exactly where to go. But then the next day, when Jessica and members of Indy 10 protested again, I was on Tina's show and I said, Tina, this is different because we've yeah. been through scenes like this before and you might have got that first night of action and then it would taper it off. But when you look at... Um, uh, the Trayvon Martin, when you look at uh, all of the different things that have happened, other cities across the country were enraged. And in every time while we talked about it here in Indianapolis, there was never any protest. So what was it, Marshawn, do you think changed that we saw this prolonged, this consecutive, this consistent flow of energy that put people in the streets? So, so what I can tell you is the night before the first a set of protests, an elected official reached out to me and asked me what did I think was going to happen. And I said the city was going to burn, um, in part because we at the African-American Coalition, we had been looking at the data on home ownership, on uh, poverty, on uh, unemployment, on violence happening to black people. In 2019 alone, uh, 50, we had 29,000 incidents of uses of force and 52% of those were against black people. And so when you when we were looking at the data and all the different um, factors that was, that was happening, and then beyond that, we had started talking to um, the community. We had held over 20 focus groups and one-on-one interviews and things of that nature as we were trying to develop an agenda, like a policy agenda. And it, I think I think not only the environment, but the fact that you had trained organizations like Indy 10, Black Lives Matter, and a number of other groups that were able to um, focus people's energy and give a rallying cry and have people show up. You had the the moment of all the data, and then you had the leadership of an organization like Indy 10, Black Lives Matter that could capitalize and get things moving. One of the things that um, I think is also important to note is that when I thought that the city was going to burn, it wasn't because of the the folks that we had here. I knew that, um, you know, our folks, you know, they were they were protests and they that's peaceful and they have the right to do that. But I, when I looked at the protests, I saw a lot of white folks busting windows. Now, eventually, some of us joined in too, but um, I, I think it was just around that time. It was time. Yeah. Yeah. Can I add something to to the momentum that we created that's being created? Um, I definitely think social media plays a role. Um, 
we know we before we didn't have we couldn't see people dying right in front of us. Uh, we couldn't play it over and over again. I remember Sean Bell killed uh, in New York uh, before his wedding. We heard about that and we saw pictures, but we didn't see it happening. Uh, Amadou Diallo, we heard about that. We didn't see it happening. I think that's kind of helped to uh, be a catalyst to people saying, okay, this is happening all over. It's not just a one-off thing. It's not just happening every once in a while, every few years, like we were getting, you know, story here and story there. It's happening all the time. And, you know, I know people say, well, the numbers, the data doesn't show that it's happening to black people as much as we think it is. It doesn't matter. It's happening. That's the whole point is it's happening and it shouldn't be happening. We pay our taxes just like everyone else. You know, we are supposed to be protected and served just like everyone else. So they are accountable to us. And the idea that we have to beg people to treat us as human beings, I think people are like over that. You know, it's high time that we receive the same treatment as everyone else. We've been here. We've built this country. This country was built on the backs of slavery, free labor. But yet and still, we're still begging to be respected as human beings. And um as, yeah, I just get really fired up. I'm just <laughs> I'm just really passionate about about my people and about our struggle. And, and that's one reason why I'm here at this newspaper. So uh, don't let me get carried away. I want to ask Jessica about that. Um, what was it for you guys that when Drejan Reed was killed on May 6th, what was it for you that on May 7th, you guys were already ready to go and organized marching downtown the next day. I remember that day and I was like, this is different. What what was it for you guys that you knew you had to keep going? I think that it was what the people called for. Um, we are responsible and accountable to community. And we listen when people say that they want to gather. We listen when people say that they don't understand certain policies or procedures of the city. And his friends reached out and said that they were hurting, that they wanted to honor him in a way. And so we listened to that and we needed to amplify their voices. It's less about an organization and the people who have social capital and more about the power of the people. And what we saw on May 6th and the days following was the power of the people. People gathered at 62nd in Michigan, as well as downtown after Rajon was shot and killed and after Mikhail Rose was shot and killed for nine days straight. That speaks to an insurmountable amount of rage and grief that people are holding on to in the midst of an unprecedented global pandemic that we likely won't see again in our lifetime. So it takes extreme training. It takes organizing. It takes social capital. It takes um, people who are focused and principled to drive that forward. I would also offer that um, people often look to Black Lives Matter in Indianapolis and even in um, our neighboring states nationally and globally as direct action solely. We are on record as having a presence in the political agendas of Indianapolis. The day following the uprising in Indianapolis downtown, um, Mayor Hogshead reached out to us and we went to his office to discuss how to proceed with protests in a way so that further damage to people would not 
continue to happen. That did not happen simply because we go out every now and then into the streets and we protest. It happens because we show up to our city council meetings. It happens because we know how to rally people around a cause. I studied political science and Spanish in college. So we're not just an aimless groundswell of people who are seeking to build clout or social capital around the death of black, brown, and indigenous people. We are studied, we are practiced, we are principled, and we are committed to driving these moments forward and amplifying them in a way that is going to spell out justice, not only for the families who have seen loss at the hands of police, but also for community. So we know what equity looks like, and we won't rest until we get it. If that means that we have to engage in direct action, that's not something that we're afraid of. If that means that we have to be prepared to be arrested and surveilled and incarcerated and ostracized from some of the communities that we are working in, that is something that we are prepared to do. I myself am not afraid to burn a bridge if it means that it's going to spell out into equity for people who would not otherwise be in the spaces that I'm in. So when we go into these spaces, it is with the understanding that we are carrying the full force of community behind us. And for the people that will never see these spaces, for the people who will never get to the mayor's office to meet with him to discuss the wrongs of IMPD and of his particular administration, we carry and amplify those voices because those are who we are accountable to. Well, we have with us backstage now, um, I do believe we can bring him in now, uh, Cameron, Congressman Andre Carson, uh, 7th Congressional District uh, here in uh, Indiana. Congressman Carson, are you there? I'm here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're, we're discussing uh, moment or movement. You know, have, what have we just been through? Have we been through a moment or have we been through a movement? And one of our panelists, I, I believe it was you, Oshia, had mentioned that um, focused energy, or maybe it was Marshawn, maybe you both talked about it, but we're, and, and, and Jessica, you're, you're, you're saying the same thing as well, that this focused energy is what's getting things, is moving the needle, so to speak. And so my question is, I guess we'll ask, uh, yeah, I, I want to ask whoever wants to take this question, how long has it been and how did we finally learn? Because, Oshia, you have the, the history of the recorder, which is, you know, goes back, what, 125 years. Um, so what have we learned in the past that has gotten us to the point where now we are operating at a much higher level and we have focused um, our energy into a lot of the different groups that you're talking about, Marshawn, uh, Oshia, into a lot of the knowledge, uh, Jessica, the organizational aspect. How how have we gotten there and what do you think has precipitated us getting there? And well, anybody can take that. So, um, so, so I want to ask the Congressman since he had just joined okay. us. I wanted to Congressman first, was 2020 a moment or a movement in well, I think it was certainly a a, a a moment that turned into many movements. Uh, there were already movements out there, but I think it was certainly a critical moment uh, when you had a degree of disillusionment in the black community in the Latino community. And I think because you had a president and you have a president who is a want to be autocrat. Uh, who stopped dog whistling, he just broke out the siren and started speaking to white supremacists. And he started speaking about this, 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 this mythical state of taking America back to a better time. And what you saw through law enforcement 
and I'm speaking as as uh, someone who was in law enforcement, but I'm also someone who has been arrested and was charged with battery on a police officer resisting arrest and fleeing at the age of 17. It wasn't the first time I was targeted. Uh, I had I was used to being targeted in my neighborhood, Dodge City, 25th Street, but it was the first time I was arrested and I was targeted not only because I was black, but because of my religion. And so what I saw moved me because when I was younger, my lens was you needed outside agitation, outside agitation, protests, activism. As I grew older, studying my grandmother and others in the city, Bill Crawford and others, I realized you needed both outside agitation and inside instigation with, with, within your general assemblies, within your halls of Congress, within your city councils, mayors, governors, presidents. You need outside agitation, inside instigation to produce legislation that will make our lives better. We know that we have over 400 years of discrimination and institutional and systemic racism that has put us behind the mark. But when you have a president who is speaking on behalf of the very enterprise that continues to subjugate and put black people in a position that 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 uh, disables our ability to advance forward, I think it's necessary to have these movements, and these movements have to be continual. When there's a new administration, that's progress, but the movement has to continue. Sometimes the the, the movement evolves. And but but I but I think that what's critically important when we have these movements and we have different players at these movements, that one, politicians don't get satisfied with just passing an ordinance or a piece of legislation, and our friends in the activist community just don't get satisfied with the protest itself and the attention it gets. It has to be continual. And so there was a moment. There were moments, much of those moments were filled with gaslighting uh, and, and, and deep bigotry and white supremacy acting out through the law enforcement vehicle uh, that, became, that became a movement. And I still think that there's something that we have to address. I just had a meeting with the superintendent of state police. Um, and, you know, I was very candid and he was very candid about uh, law enforcement, I think, being one of the last havens of, of, of white supremacy. And, and, and I think that he's one who, who's willing to listen as well as uh, Mayor Hogsett and others. Indeed, indeed. As, as we're talking right now, and I don't know how many of you got the alert on your phone, but I'll go ahead and give credit to Indy Sar for the story that they just put out about um, a proposal for Blue Lives Matter or mm. back the blue, back the blue street mural to be painted mm. over on Shelby Street. Of course, this comes after the summer when Indy 10 uh, got Indiana Avenue to be painted with uh, Black Lives Matter. So when we talk about law enforcement, and the congressman just mentioned uh, white supremacy, but movement or movement, going back to that, what does this say, Jessica, I'll start with you, this, this piggybacking or... What is this when you guys start something and it's very clear what your intention is, but then you have folks who come behind you to try to do the opposite, but do the same thing you're doing, if that makes sense. Hmm. It's a derailment and a distraction, honestly. You know, it's um, it would be one thing if the, first of all, it's, it's asinine that the city council thinks that we are going to use taxpayer money to put up some art for the police. 
IMPD got an increase of $7 million to their already hundreds of million dollars budget. They're looking at $261 million in their budget. They have militarized equipment at their hands. What more support do they need? If I had access to $261 million, I would not be phased by someone wanting to put a mural up in my honor. So it just speaks to the lack of priority in uh, some of our city council members, which is fine because we are closely tracking some of the things that they are attempting mm-hmm. to pass. Um, we actually have a call to action for a community to assist us in mm-hmm. um, public pressure to vote no on Proposition 355. It's pointless. When we installed the mural on Indiana Avenue, we closely looked at a historically black neighborhood that was in danger of being um, gentrified. And we wanted to make sure that we were reclaiming that space for us. We also crowdfunded, fundraised, and reached out to our community and corporate partners. And we said, look, we don't want the city to be a part of this because this is for us and it is by us. This is a collective effort within community and we need to be the ones that pay for it. The only input that the city had as far as our mural was concerned were permits so that we could close down Indiana Avenue to have that mural installed. And so it is beyond me. I don't have the mental capacity right now to even wrap my mind around why a city council member um, would think that it would be appropriate in this day and age for us to use tax taxpayer dollars to put in art to support a murderous gang that is already backed by the state government. I won't have it. And if it goes up, then they're going to have to deal with whatever comes with it, just like we did. So I, I want to get back to, to the question, I guess, the, the significance or uh, importance of the focused energy, because that is that is indeed what moves the needle. And uh, Jessica, you just mentioned it. Basically, you've got your eye on the ball. That's that's you're not you know you, you're focused on what it is and what it's going to take to get this message out. So, um, any of you want to weigh in on on that in terms of just staying the course because that's what moves things, and that's we yeah. haven't always done that in the past. I know Marshawn, you said it at some point we were bragging, or we that was a. Uh, uh, I don't know, a feather in the cap that Indianapolis will not behave that way and Indianapolis is not going to do that. Yeah, no, that's, and and that's certainly um, no longer the case. We realized that not protesting didn't really help uh, much of anything. Uh, I know from the AACI's perspective, um, we've been looking at um, the policy space and, and developing, going through our agenda process one of the things we learned is that there has not been a consistent and sustained effort in engaging the city council on our agenda. Exactly. Um, it's It's been maybe one-offs where people run in and try to get certain things for themselves, but it hasn't been a situation where you say food deserts, affordable housing, education, police reform, community violence, Education, these are all issues that we need you all to be working on in a consistent fashion. By the way, here are a set of ideas. We want to commission on African-American males that are not only focused on black males, but also uh, girls and women. We want a youth commission uh, that's going to focus on system-impacted youth and uh, incorporate their voices into the public policy process. We want a food fund. We want you to change the way you think about uh, education and charter schools and how you put them in here, making sure they're focused on racial equity. These are all things we we wanted a use of force board. We wanted a a general orders board. 
these are all with citizen um, participation and citizen actually citizen leadership on on these boards. And so these are all things that have happened uh, in part because of a lot of people have been coming together and working together. Um, from our perspective, I mean, this is what needs to continue to happen. You need that um, outside agitation and inside instigation to get the policies in place. And now, now that you have the policies, the additional work of continuing to monitor. So it doesn't mean anything to get your food fund and the food fund doesn't feed people. It doesn't mean anything to get a general orders board and the general orders board doesn't meet or doesn't, you know, actually deliver on changes in policy. I mentioned earlier that 52% of the uses of force were against black people. If that number doesn't change, when we have a use of force board led by civilians, that's still a problem. So um, the work is, there's still so much more work to be done, but I think we're at a moment now where we're learning the benefits of being in a sustained movement. And I'm, I'm motivated and, and inspired by that. No, go ahead. I think that's key. I think that's key is um, we have we have arrived and yeah. then we thought we arrived and we stopped. We just stopped working and we and I think that's key now that we've realized we have to sustain it. We have to make sure that we hold our elected officials accountable, that we are maintaining and watching what they're doing. We just don't vote them in now and say, okay, you're in, you're gonna work for me because I voted you in. We're, I think we're much more sophisticated now than what we were before, or maybe we were always sophisticated and we just didn't use it. Um, but I think we're recognizing what we need to do now to keep moving the needle forward, as you said, Tina, we have to actually pay attention now. I think we're realizing that, that we can't just go in and say, okay, this is gonna happen, or we got this, now we're done. No, we have to continue moving. I think we also have to realize that what we ask for black people, we need to make sure it happens for black people. We can't just always want to include everyone. We're not getting what our just do yet either. And I think we're realizing that as well, that when, when um, what, what's the saying? Um, all things, right, right time, whatever the saying is, you know what I'm saying? Uh, <laughs> I can't think of the saying right now, but I think we're realizing that no, sometimes we need things just for us because we have a different history in this country that we've been affected differently. And so sometimes we need to focus on black people and our needs, and then we can start focusing on other people and their needs. And I think we're, we're, coming, we're coming into that knowledge, into that enlightenment of we need to actually focus on us in our home. Like I tell my dad, I'm like, daddy, when we're talking about uh, us and our family, you're not saying, well, let me go feed everyone. You're saying, no, let me feed my family first and then I'll go and feed other people after I know that we're secure. And I think we're realizing some, we're realizing some mistakes we made in the past and learning from them and saying, okay, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to rectify these things and move forward. And I'll show you, it's, interesting that, it's interesting that you said that because uh, there was a guest on my show that used the analogy of uh, everybody's been on a plane. Everybody on this panel, I'm sure has been on a plane at some point in time. What's the, when they tell you and they're giving you the safety instructions, uh, put your mask on first uh, and then see to anybody else around you, like young children or elderly or what have you, because if you don't have, if you can't, if you're not the best you can be, you cannot help anybody else. So we've got to, we've got to take care of ourselves first before we can start looking out at the broader picture. And, and very quickly, uh, Congressman, uh, I, want, I want to circle back to a point I think that everyone here has made as well, and that is holding elected officials accountable. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you when you hear holding elected officials accountable? And how is it that you hope to, how is it that you would like to see yourself being held accountable for what you're doing in office? No, that's a great question. Um, 
It's a fantastic question because I think oftentimes um, elected officials and, and even voters um, can get pretty gray in terms of what that means. I think it means that when you have a representative, you have to decide, you know, some, some, some folks in office have to decide if they're going to be um, a trustee or if they're going to be a representative. And I try to be both. I try to be a representative of uh, constituents' interests. Um, sometimes uh, that's not always reflected. Even, you know, my, my tweets about uh, Drejan Reed uh, were met with some uh, animosity from the law enforcement community. And we got a lot of calls and I met with a lot of, you know, I talked to uh, some, some representatives and executives in the law enforcement community who were upset with my tweets. And I had to be clear. And I said, you know, I don't base my tweets off of police investigations. I base my tweets off of what I personally feel is an injustice. And I base my, my, my tweets, my statements, my bills off of what I'm hearing from constituents. And even though I think that there are police officers who go to work who want to do the right thing, uh, I know because I was in law enforcement, there are far too many police officers who have a skewed view of who black people are and what black people represent. Uh, but having said that, I think that we have to be clear. If you vote someone in office, there's an expectation, depending on uh, their jurisdiction. We get a lot of calls every day about potholes and we always direct them to the, to, to the right. We don't say that's not my job. We direct them. We get a lot of calls about uh, poor relief and people who can't pay their rent. I don't say, hey, that's not my job. We direct them to the trustee's office. We work with them. We direct them to the mayor's action center. We plug them into people in the mayor's office because I believe I'm a public servant. I think it has to be clear because of our history as black people through slavery and we have a disrupted family system, we have to be sure that an elected official is not your mama or your daddy. That person cannot be your parent. So any parental needs that are unmet, uh, they shouldn't be placed on that elected official. Uh, if you do that, you do yourself a disservice. I think anytime we place all of our hopes, fears, dreams, and aspirations on an individual or an organization, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment and failure. Um, as a member of Congress, uh, I'm tasked with making sure I, I do things to bring money back to the state. Uh, I sit on the Transportation Committee. One of my goals is to make sure that we have funding for rail, uh, uh, particularly in our state, making sure our airlines are funded. I sit on the Intel Committee. I hope to do the same in terms of our national security. I had a, had a meeting with some city councilors recently about what's happening in the state legislature uh, with the moratorium and those who are blocking uh, bus rapid transit in our city. Now, my, I'm tasked with bringing money to the city, but those legislators and city councilors are tasked with passing laws and, and ordinances that will, of course, attract tourism, attract more businesses. And so when I, when I talked to those folks, I said, well, hey, let's I won't mention names, but let's let's put together a Zoom call to talk to one, the legislators who are against bus rapid transit in Indianapolis. And I know that there's a lot of big city resentment in every state. People, you know, are resentful of the capital city when they come from different parts of the state. But this moratorium on bus rapid transit impacts black folks, especially black folks who live in food deserts. So as a representative who has a food deserts bill, I have to speak to that. I have to call the Marshawn Wallies up and I have to call Sister Jessica up and say, hey, what can we do about this? In fact, um, uh, uh, I, 
I just had a meeting with uh, the, the, the young sisters from Black Women in Charge. Uh, they're giving a presentation uh, before the USDA, and they asked us about food deserts. I said, you know what? Just last week, we met with the Black Farmers of America. Uh, they have a lawsuit with the federal government. Here's some resources. So I think holding elected officials accountable is critically important, and it must be done. It's your taxpayer dollars at work. We represent your taxpayer dollars being put to work. Uh, we cast votes based on your interests. And you're not always going to agree on what an elected official does. And you shouldn't. That may be healthy. Now, if the, the elected official is toxic and, and obviously out of line with your personal philosophy, then they have to be voted out or replaced. But if there's an occasional philosophical difference, I think that happens with human beings. But I think holding an elected official is, is, is certainly accountable. And elected officials should hold voters accountable. An elected official should certainly hold voters accountable. But I think we have to be clear as black people that an elected official is not your savior and that person is not your parent. That person is there to represent your taxpayer dollars. And that level of accountability should, should meet that expectation. Indeed. Cameron. I think it's important also what what representative what uh, Representative Carson said about our elected officials not being our saviors and which is why you will not see BLM Indy back a candidate. We are more interested in people having um, access to be able to vote and understand how to vote, how to get to where you're voting, what you need to vote. If people want to engage in that particular activity and it is a community need, we are more interested in assisting people with transportation, making sure that you have a driver's license, making sure that people with felony convictions understand their rights, making sure that there is an understanding of voter suppression and what to do if you feel suppressed at the polls, then we are in backing a political candidate because as humans, we are flawed. Um, and electoral politics is not liberation. It's not. Um, legislation is necessary in a lot of the ways that we want to see equity be spelled out in our communities, but it's also not liberation. Rules and regulations are not liberation. And if we say by any means necessary, then that is exactly what we mean. And so um, while we're appreciative of some of the work that some of our elected officials have done, and while we ourselves might participate in that particular um civic engagement. It's not something that we amplify um, individually or as a collective. I know from our perspective, we've taken on the idea of legislation. Marshawn has a point, Cameron. Hold on. So our perspective from the AACI's position has been make sure that the elected officials do what they say they're going to do. And then also, if they don't have enough work, let's give them something. Let's give them ideas, good ideas, supported by data, supported by community input to move the needle forward on some policies. But I agree, um, actually, with Jessica. Politicians are not going to save us. The government is not going to save us. And so the ACI has really been focused on institution building. Um, when you look at the African-American Legacy Fund, this is a fund that's over at CICF, but it's a philanthropic fund meant to support our issues, things that um, the larger philanthropic community won't touch. When you look at the exchange at the Indianapolis Urban League, that is a young professionals group designed to help people uh, get engaged in a variety of different ways in, in our community. But we're also trying to build leaders so they can serve on different boards, uh, serve on government boards, civic boards, for-profit boards, so that they can be a part of the decision-making 
infrastructure that's out here. There's a number of things that um, I think needs to happen from an institutional building perspective. We need a black bank. We need a black community development financing institution. We need uh, more black um, schools uh, led by black leaders that are doing the right thing by our children. And so um, I, I completely agree. Yes, you have to hold the elected officials accountable, but you also have to be building your own table your own institutions for yourself because they are not going to save us. I agree. I think to Jessica's point, I think what you're talking about is like a more mature way of looking at voting and looking at what we should do. It's transactional. We have to understand that uh, voting someone in means when I give you my vote, I expect something in return. It's not, you're not my savior and we won't always agree. And, and, and like you said, no one's perfect. We're all human beings, so we're all going to have flaws, and we won't agree with everything. We won't agree 100%. But we have to understand that it is a transactional uh, uh, movement. So when I say, okay, I'm going to vote for you, what do I want to return? Here's what I want to return. I need to let you know my expectations when I give you that vote. And if you don't meet those expectations, then I need to have a talk with you or use my vote to vote for someone else. And I think, to your point, Marshawn, we have to build our own institutions, definitely. It's a two-way, it's kind of a two-fold thing. While government has always played a role in wealth building, um, no one in this country has had wealth without government playing a role. We're talking about farmers. Farmers have had government give them land and create wealth for those farmers. Black farmers had their land taken away. So we always have government in, those, in the way or helping others create wealth. So we need to expect the same thing for black people at the same time, building our own and making sure that we're we're not waiting on anyone to deliver us. It has to be a twofold thing. We have to work for ourselves and we also have to expect things from our government as that we pay into. And I wanted to kind of go back. Congressman Carson, you made a point about law, law enforcement kind of uh, being upset with your tweets. I think we mm -hmm. need to get to a point where we have to understand we pay them. They work for us, not Talk the other me. way around. <laughs> not the other way around. And we need to take ownership of that and let them know you work for me. I well, don't fraternal order police. We yes. do not work for you. Yes. So <laughs> that no, has I, been I, one of my I, biggest pet peeves for a very long time is that we uh, everyone's always afraid to say something uh, against law enforcement. Why? Why? We are their employers. Listen, I'm so happy you brought that up. And, and I'll say this again. You know, I appreciate those good police officers who, who sacrifice. Uh, I think Marshawn feels me on that one. Yep. But I will say, I fell out. And, and, and it, it, it was a few months ago. So, you know, put, I had some words with some folks in the FOP. I'm going to speak broadly. And I don't know, I, I don't know what expectation they had when they met with me. I think they misread me, but when they left up out of that meeting, they knew what time it was because I certainly used some expletives and I probably wasn't as congressional as I am on this phone, but I'm, I'm a human being and I'm certainly a man. And you're not gonna talk to me sideways. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're packing, you're gonna get this work verbally. And the fact that you're even trying to send black officers to DM and call our office Look, if you have a concern as an officer, I want to respect it. I understand law enforcement. You're going to have support. But if I feel that a wrong has happened, you're not going to try to gangster me out of my opinion 
or have me wait until an investigation is complete to make a public statement about it. You know, and so I met with some police executives. We had a great conversation about it, and I'll end it there. But at the end of the day, I'm very aware, to your wonderful point, that they, too, are paid by taxpayer dollars. Your taxpayer dollars, my taxpayer dollars, and that is the whole issue. Excess, gone unchecked, because you have a badge does not mean that you can talk to anybody any way you want to. Period. Yeah. Not even. And I wish somebody would tell Chief uh, Taylor that because when we met with him over the summer after we labored to get Andy Pride to divest from IMPD, he was upset about losing that contract, which he should be because it's money down the drain. And we meant what we said when we said defund. If it don't happen at the city council, we're going to go around you. So a few members of our leadership team met with him and he threatened them with water cannons and dogs. He said in the meeting? He said in the meeting. Meeting. In the meeting, we were talking about the use of force that protesters were met with um, during the uprisings and even when we were on 62nd in Michigan. And he replied sarcastically, well, what would you have me do? Would you rather we resort back to water hoses and dogs? Now, you're talking to black women in films who are driving this moment nationally and globally. Every day when I stepped outside of my house over the summer, IMPD was there. I had IMPD officers come to my home to make sure that I wasn't at a protest. And I don't even live technically in Indianapolis. I live just outside of it. So there was no reason for them to come to my home. So it was wild to me that the chief of police had the audacity and he felt compelled to say that. And he thought that we weren't going to lift it up. Sir, you work for us. And you know that. And that's why we came to your house over the summer and we woke you up. Well, see that that that's where your congressman comes in when these kinds of things happen. That's where open lines of communication are important, and you can anybody can get on the horn and call your brother Andre Carson when these kinds of things happen. And you know, I I, I think that um, you know the founding fathers, slaveholders that they were, racist that they were, sexist that they were, they were brilliant in setting up separate branches of government. But 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 but, but can, can I ask a question? I know this is you all's program because it's something that we're wrestling with. Um, even as we talk about this stimulus, an additional stimulus check and negotiations this week, hopefully we'll get out of here. Um, I don't know if I missed it because I couldn't hear the audio. Um, and I know President Obama made some remarks uh, recently that were controversial about the language of defund the police. Should the language be recalibrated to make the point Get, give me some. Can I get some insights? Respectfully, I'm not trying to take over the show, but could you all give yes. me some insights? Yeah, yeah. So with the um, with the folks that we that we work with, mm -hmm. hearing defund the police has to be explained. Okay. And if it has to be explained. It's it's too. It takes too much time. And okay. folks, and as soon as people hear that term, it just shuts them down because we're we're also wrestling with the the issue of black victims, black victims in the city. Twice in the last five years, we've had over 100 black males killed in the city. We need police to do their job and help keep us safe. Mm -hmm. we, don't need them, we don't need them abusing their powers. We don't need them out here doing things that violate people's constitutional rights. Mm -hmm. But we do need a police department that's providing safety to our communities. So I remember, you know, talking to my mom, I'm, I, She's like, no, nah, defund the police, that don't make no sense whatsoever. I had to explain it to her, but in trying to explain that to her, it took it took too much time. And so it was it was a done deal by the time we got it. Now folks want to and, and you can't just assume people are just gonna look it up. 
Mm-hmm. Now, now, some people have even said abolish the police, abolish the police. Yeah. And people say, well, if you do that, you're going to have uh, 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 vigilantism rise and you're going to have different groups, essentially gangs. So should we say reallocate resources? Should we say recalibrate the police? Help me I want to hear. I want to hear what yeah. Jess. I want to hear from Jessica. Okay. But I will say. Yeah. I will say quickly to Marshawn's point. I think it's a generational thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's definitely generational. My dad hearing hearing defund the police. He's he was very. We had a whole, we had like a three hour conversation mm-hmm. of us going back and forth. Yeah. And why I understood it immediately. He. I think he, his point was that what your mom was saying. You need the police. Uh, the police. You know. Um, so I definitely want to hear what Jessica says, um, but I definitely think it's a generational thing. I think younger people don't have this issue. They don't, they don't have this, this, this conversation. (laughs) I think it's a, I think it's a status quo. And I, like I told my dad said, you have to think outside the box, use your imagination. Um, there might be a way to do this thing better to do it differently. And it's interesting because that generation dealt with the police in a very negative way. mm -hmm. That's Mm -hmm. tripped out. Yeah. Jessica. It's a multifaceted thing, Um, but we want to be clear that when we say defund the police, we mean defund the police as a vehicle to abolition. You're operating inside of systems. These things are not happening inside of a vacuum. We have studied the civil rights movement. We have studied movements and revolutions and uprisings in Haiti and in different countries in Africa and other places in the world that black, brown and indigenous people experience um, terrorism, surveillance, incarceration, and death at the hands of police. So we are very clear that when we say defund the police, that we are not meaning, you know, police reform. Uh, We are on record as having said that several years ago, under Chief Height, we offered tangible ways, tangible measures for IMPD and police forces to reform their ways. Those were overwhelmingly rejected. And this was at a time where we were not in the streets, where there were not uprisings occurring in Indianapolis, where um, we had perhaps a less radical view than we do now. We have graduated past that point. So when we say defund the police, we absolutely mean defund the police. I offer to people that I grew up middle class. And so police presence mm-hmm. in my life, in my two parent household in the suburbs looks very different than the leaders and the establishers mm-hmm. of Indy 10 who grew up in a different socioeconomic status. Mm-hmm. I want the peace and the presence of family and community that I felt in my middle class neighborhood mm-hmm. to be expanded to all black lives. And in order for that to happen, this entity, this state backed entity, the state-backed mm-hmm. gang, who is simply a reactionary measure. There are no proactive measures that they are taking except for these performative, you know, platitudes of them reaching out and doing community days and attempting to recruit officers of color and even boasting that they have a chief of color who then goes and threatens black women films who are doing liberation work on behalf of community. That's not liberation to us. So it is necessary that we defund and that we reimagine the role of police in our lives. You know, everyone here, I would assume that your basic needs are being met and exceeded. So you don't feel compelled to go out and commit our understanding of crime against others, whether it's in your community or outside of it. You don't feel compelled to stay in um, a role of crisis. Some of you may not even have gotten your stimulus checks because you exceeded the salary requirements to even be able to do that. But when the federal government 
government says that its citizens, its residents only deserve 40 hours of minimum pay and a month's worth of that during a global pandemic, something is wrong and we cannot continue to operate inside of these systems and to think that these systems are going to continue to serve us in ways that are going to translate in the most marginalized. Now, yes, if we have a standing or if we have, you know, some sort of relationship with the police, I can see how we would wrestle with the idea. But I would offer up to you that six, seven years ago when Black Lives Matter first became a rallying cry, that it was uncomfortable for people to say, that people could not wrap their minds around what it meant to say that Black Lives Matter and to stand alone as people who need to be prioritized in community, people who need to be prioritized in legislation and people who need to be prioritized with each other. And look where we've gotten in six years. Six years ago, could any of you have imagined that $7 million worth of damage would have happened in downtown Indianapolis because police are killing black people? That's not something that was in our wheelhouse. We have been given an ancestral charge and it is our duty to carry that ancestral charge forward. And our imaginations have allowed us to push past our understanding of what it means to have police presence in our communities. People aren't on board yet and that's fine. Seven years ago, people weren't on board with Black Lives Matter. And now what do we have? Professional athletes reaching out to Indy 10 asking, how can we donate to your cause because we see what you're doing? Seven years ago, we didn't have the capacity to think that we could serve people through a food pantry. And it's about 1,300 families who are served a week with zero corporate sponsorship and outside of the nonprofit industrial complex, but it's something that's being done. So I'm grateful for our imagination. And I'm excited to see where it's going to take us and we will always hold room at the table for people to come and join us in that fight to defund and abolish the systems that are keeping our people oppressed. Are you a C3, Jessica? We're not a C3. We're not an LLC. We are not a C4. We are a group of people who are committed to the unapologetic and necessary liberation of our people. And we have no interest in engaging the nonprofit industrial complex in order to bring about liberation. A board will not serve Indy 10. How do I go to a board member? How do I go to a president emeritus and tell them that on Saturday at 6 a.m. we want to go to Chief Taylor's house because we don't have answers that we are seeking? We would get voted down. We need to operate outside of the confines of these structures. And that is what is getting us results. Well, I okay, thank you. We are, 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 we are just about out of time. Go ahead and go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead and make your point. No, My apologies. I was preaching, y'all. I'm sorry. Jessica's transparency because I was on a Zoom call recently and, 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 and um, a young sister said, all of these people talking about defund the police did not grow up in the inner city where their lives were threatened constantly. Then Jessica says, well, you want other people to experience the, the peace you had. Never heard that said before. So that that's that, that's a different perspective. But what do you say, Jessica, to those people? So that is your answer. You want them to experience what you experienced growing up where you grew up. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. That's, that's, so that's uh, and, and a beautiful point made indeed. And thank you know everyone. Cameron, um, I, I think we can solidly conclude that we are seriously in the middle of a movement. No doubt about it whatsoever. Movement indeed, and one of the ways I was trying to measure it was Jessica gave us two different extremes where we she clearly has the congressman's ear who's mm-hmm. who we can tell is involved in these conversations all the time. There's movement, whereas a couple of years ago she would have said no congressman or elected officials taking her seriously. But mm-hmm. it sounds like there's still 
uh, a lot of work to do when it comes to law enforcement, as Jessica has made it clear, they're less than fond of their relationship with IMPD uh, mm -hmm. as leadership. So definitely a movement, not there yet, mm -hmm. like so many other things, but still moving along. Yeah. Thank you so much. So, so very, very quickly, um, we were talking about, and, and again, we have about a minute and a half, maybe two, but building our own institutions. And when we had our own institutions, when we had our own communities before, we were forced into it. We had no choice. We had thriving community. We were forced into that. We had no choice. What, very quickly, what kind of inspiring words, a couple or, or messages uh, in, in 20 seconds or less that, that each of you can give to anyone watching about the fact or to the fact that, hey, it's coming, we can do it again, and we don't have to be enslaved to do it, and we don't have to be in Jim Crow to do it. We can do it again. Because when you talk about the black institutions, the banks, and all of the other things that we need and that we're going to have to have something of our own, we need to know that it's still possible without having been enslaved or living in uh, segregated conditions. I'll just start quickly. Um, since I'm at an institution that's 125 years old, started 1895, um, and it's still here. So, and we, while we can't cover everything, we may not do everything the way you want it done, we are here for our people. And um, it's important that we have our voice, that we, that we speak to our people in a way that uh, educates, engages, empowers. Those are my three things I try to do with our articles, educate, educate engage, and empower. Because I've been in this industry for over 20 years. I've worked at mainstream papers, so I know what happens in newsrooms. And I know that often we are overlooked. Our stories aren't told. We try to make sure that we tell our stories in the best way we can and and, and, and do our due diligence as journalists. So I'll end it there. Thank you. Marshawn, 20 seconds or less. Uh, so when I think about uh, the last few years, uh, the ability to come up with an agenda to work uh, collaboratively, uh, collaboratively across a broad spectrum of political ideologies to arrive at a consensus on some basic things that we need as a community and to see those things begin to come into fruition has been inspirational for me. Um, one of the things I've appreciated is that when you're uh, with black folks, you don't have to agree on everything, but if you can come to a consensus on um, just the value of black lives, I think mm -hmm. that's been what's hold, held a broad spectrum that is the AACI together. And so I'm, I'm inspired by that. Thank you, Marshawn. Jessica? Mute yourself, Jessica. You're muted. I would continue to encourage people to reimagine their lives outside of the systems of oppression that we've been brought up in and that we ourselves help sustain in ways. If your movement engages capitalism, if your movement engages um, continued oppression of marginalized groups, you need to reimagine your understanding of liberation. Also, we are here for you. If there is a need and if you feel that you have a skill that you can offer the movement, we have a place for you at the table and we welcome people who are committed to the total unapologetic and necessary liberation for all black lives. Thank you. Thank and you. Congress, 20 seconds. Can you do it? Well, <laughs> well, speaking as a politician, I'll just say uh, the right to vote is under attack. I think including schemes like voter suppression and gerrymandering. Uh, I think in this modern era, this is probably the most widespread and insidious way that black people's political power and voices are diminished. If our voting block wasn't a problem, they wouldn't have created uh, poll taxes. And I think that while it's not an elixir, it's not enough for elected officials to come to our churches, our mosques, our community centers, do the electric slide, Cupid shuffle. And mm -hmm. once they get in the office, they vote against our interests. We have to leverage our voting block 
to bring about political change. Thank you all. Cameron, take us out. All right, thank you so much, Marshawn, Oshia, Jessica, and Congressman. Thank you so much for uh, letting us know if 2020 was a moment or movement, and I think now we know it was a movement. For Tina Cosby, I'm Cameron Riddle. For all of us at Radio 1, thank you for watching and let us letting us inspire you.